0: Uh, thank you for again all the reminders that we have had in song. Thank you, Father, for the things we could learn this morning as we sang to you, as we sang to each other, Father, as we sang about our walk with you. And now, as we open your Word, I pray you would help me to be clear. I pray you would, your Holy Spirit would be here in power, as Father. Without your Holy Spirit, nothing can be accomplished. We thank you again for the opportunity to be here together in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I moved here, uh, I'd never ever done any sort of gardening before. Uh, I think, if I'm remembering right, uh, when I was younger, I tried the whole Chia Pet thing, uh, and uh, that didn't work out for me. But now, uh, it was just this summer, I, I found it rather funny how things can change because now we're getting an abundance of seed catalogs in the mail. Uh, and uh, I actually, admittedly, follow some gardening groups on Facebook. Uh enjoyed the end of the summer uh, picking and canning tomatoes, and my kids got to uh, carve giant pumpkins a few weeks ago that we grew. Uh, we did grow some cucumbers, but not enough to put in anybody's car. Um, and so uh, we have just, uh, just enjoyed the, the process of gardening. But if you had told me five years ago, perhaps on the first Sunday I got here, you would come to me and say, Pastor Tim, in five years, you are going to love gardening. I would have told you, you are out of your mind. But I do. I love the process, especially at the end of the season, when you get to enjoy the delicious things that you can make with potatoes and carrots and basil and tomatoes, uh, and yes, even squash and cucumbers. Uh, And it's just been an enjoyable thing for me. Uh, And certainly an enjoyable thing for my wife. Last week we started a series about being fruitful in our individual lives uh, and also being fruitful as a church. When I say be fruitful, uh, what I'm talking about, the Bible talks about, is doing good things that have eternal value. The book of Philippians reminds us that we have the ability as believers to accomplish good works that will have fruit that will actually outlive us. That there are things that we can do uh, that that will have fruit or bear fruit uh, that will outlive us. We can look just all around us and see the fruit of people who are long gone, uh, long since dead. But Jesus tells his disciples that we have to be careful. Because there are going to be things in our lives that are going to show up, that are going to try and keep us from being fruitful. We talked about that a couple of years ago, about how anxiety is one of those things that can come and try and choke out our fruitfulness. Uh, we, uh, the Bible tells us about just simply being busy. Busyness can choke out fruitfulness if we never take the time to rest. But the Bible also warns us that there are going to be times in our lives where we are going to think that what we're doing is going to bear fruit the example that comes to my mind is how many times that i have heard young ladies say to me when they want to date a boy or get to know a boy who isn't a christian well maybe my testimony will help him become a christian and so that's an idea that has it looks on the surface has the potential for fruit but the bible tells us isn't going to bear fruit james gives us another that anger, the anger of men do not, the anger of men does not produce the fruit that God wants to produce in a person's life. So you might be able to get mad at your kid, and you might be able to get angry enough with your kid to get him to do what you want them to do, but the Bible warns you that that is not a route that is going to produce fruit. So what we want to do is we want to have a fruitful life, and we certainly want to have a fruitful church. And We started last week by looking at the need for the gospel, the need for vision. The gospel really provides the place, the core, the the, the place of balance, if you want to use that picture. We went to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and we saw how the gospel uh, needs to be the center. And that doesn't just mean we proclaim the gospel, and it doesn't just mean, of course, it's important to believe the gospel, of utmost importance to believe the gospel, But it means that the gospel has to be at the center. It's not that it's the only thing we do in our life. It's not the only thing we have as a church. But it must be the main thing. You can think of it if you want to keep the gardening analogy. uh, The gospel is the nutrition of the soil. Without the gospel, nothing is going to grow. And so we looked at that last week. And now we're going to continue to look that if you're going to plant a garden, if you're a gardener this morning you understand that you need more than just good soil. There are other things that you need to, to have a garden to grow things. Uh, and one of the things that we need to have, as a, uh, to have a fruitful life and a fruitful church is we need timeless truths. Timeless truths, or we could say teaching. We need teaching about God specifically. We need teachings about ourselves, who are we. And we need teachings about the world that we live in. We, as a church, call this what, class? Doctrine. So if we're going to be fruitful people, one of the things that we are going to have to have is not just the the gospel giving us the nutrition in the soil, but we are going to need doctrine. And in verses 18 to 32, here in Romans chapter 1, I want to point out the essential. I want to call three essential doctrines for a fruitful life in church. Three essential doctrines for a fruitful life in church. Number one. Number one, we exist, that would be us individually as people, we exist for holiness and love. We exist for holiness and love. One of the main thrusts of this text is to remind us Uh, of the thing that the world wants to deny, and the fact is that there is a God. And uh, not only that, the major theme here is that God is a judge. God has standards. As Christians, in in Christian circles and churches, we typically use the phrase that God is holy. The term holy simply means that God is above us. He's different than us, separated from us. He does not share in our faults and our failures, he does not share in our weakness and certainly does not share in our sins. The idea here is that God sits in a place in the universe where he and he alone has the sole right to determine what is right and what is wrong. But we also learn something else in this passage. Is that he's a creator. That he made things on purpose. That he hung the stars, he put natural law into motion, he even crafted human beings. Human beings are living, eternal beings that are different than himself. He did this. And it leads to a question, why would a holy God, why would a God who is separate and distinct and different from us, make us? Why would he make the world? Why would he be a creator? And the text answers the question, it's a very unique Christian answer. And the first thing is, is that, that uh, God created, first of all, the world around us so that we could see Him. The text tells us very clearly that the, the natural order, the, the nature, if you will, does have, a, have things to tell us about God. But not only that, it tells us that God created us with some inner desire to know Him. And so, if you want to answer the question, why did God make people? And why did God put those people in this created world? The answer in this text is this, so that we would know him. God did not make people because he was in need of love. God did not make people because he had some need for community. God made people for the sole purpose of them loving and knowing his joy. So we could know him. So as he spills out all that is him into the world, we could know more about him. We were created to know him. Jesus tells us the greatest commandment in all of the Bible, the greatest thing that a person can do in their life is what? Love the Lord their God. That's how we find our purpose is that the very first place we go is that God created everything and created us for the purpose of us knowing him. Which means we have to know him. And one of the things that we see in this text is a correction of an error that we can have. For example here... Uh, the, the Bible clearly teaches us here that God is a judge, that he stands over the universe in judgment. But this text does not come with the idea that God is only a judge. For the teaching that God is only a judge creates a belief system or religion that is very similar to things like Islam and another of Christian cults. To think that God is only a judge or that God is only holy can create harsh, judgmental communities. This doctrine distorted causes a Christianity that is rule-based, full of condemnation. The text is very clear. Yes, God does judge judge sins. No sinner that does not have the covering of the blood of Christ will escape the wrath of God. But that's not all that God is. Because we have the, the second teaching here, and that is to correct the other error. And the other error is this. This is to think that God is nothing more than the grandfather in the sky, always amused by the actions of his children. That God is more than, than your heavenly therapist. And unfortunately, this is the single most popular version of Christianity. And unfortunately, it creates environments and it creates churches and it creates Christians who only worship God because of what they can get out of him. And you emphasize God in your life as long as God is useful. This is why we have so much inconsistencies. Because we only run to him when we have this idea that he could be of help. But the Bible presents to us here a God who is holy and perfect and the judge of right and wrong. But he is also joy and love and creator. And this is important to the fruitful life. Because if we were made to know him. We're also told that the greatest commandment comes with an explanation. To love the Lord our God means that that turns and gives us the purpose or it helps us to understand loving our neighbor. God created us so that he could show all of us or share with all of us his perfection. As the example Which means that we are not just called to be holy, and we are not just called to be loving. We are called to be a holy people who pour out love and joy into the next community. Whether that's the community of marriage, the community of parenting, the community of work, the community of church. You were created to model this. We are loved and served by God. We are are given a world and we are given uh, a life that uh, that is for the purpose of knowing him. So that when we know him, out of that, we find our purpose of love and holiness. So who are we? Why do we exist? We exist for holiness and love. Leads us to the second essential doctrine to a life of fruitfulness in a church that's going to be fruitful. Number two, humanity's relationship with God is broken. We must start from this position. The world around us does not start here. It starts with the idea that, uh, that everything's okay with God... But the main thrust of the text here is clear, that the the issue that that plagues all of us is that our relationship with him is broken. God is angry. That's the idea here in the text. And we get an answer in verse 18 as to why God is angry with us. And, And generally, it tells us it's because we suppress truth. For example, the text gives us the first example of the fact that in creation... It says that we can look out into the, to the, to the created, the visible, the touchable, the tasteable. And we can find there the fingerprint of God. And we can find there things that can teach us, first of all, about the fact that he does exist. You look at the stars, the Bible tells us, and you should know at that point that God exists. And then as you learn more about what the sun is, I, I showed a video to my kids this week about the size of the sun compared to some of the, 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 uh, the, the red giants out in the universe. And so, not only does the existence of the sun, but the existence of a red giant tells me not only does he exist, but he is powerful. But instead, even though we have this plainly obvious message, this plainly obvious picture, the text tells us that we ignore it and that we completely miss the obvious. But this still exists, the text tells us, the sun and the red giants. And so we still don't have any excuse. It's there, it's readable, we can know it, but we don't pay attention to it. But the text tells us something else. Is this fingerprint, this knowledge that is in the red giant, this knowledge that is in uh, the Venus flytrap, if you will, This knowledge is central. It's integrated into us as people. Something about us knows he's there. If you want to understand where that is in your life, look to the things that drive you to make you feel like a good person. Every atheist, every agnostic that you will meet has rules, they have ideas, they have beliefs, That they think that if they go that route will make them a good person. What drives human beings to do whatever it takes to feel like good people? That's what the Bible says, the image of God. That is the, the imprint of him in us. And over thousands of years, humanity has come up with all sorts of rules and ideas of what it means to be a good person. And and unfortunately, every generation comes along and thinks itself wiser than the one before it. And and the Bible says here they're just as foolish. So the problem here is that we throw a tarp over the fingerprint of God inside of us, and we ignore all the evidence around us. And we, we, we are accountable to God, but we live as though we are not. And in response to all of this, there is a broken relationship. Note the term here in the text. It says, and God gave them up. This is his wrath, his judgment. The idea there is God stopped restraining them. If you want to know what the judgment of God looks like in your life. So you say, God, why don't you ever judge sin? If you want to look for it, if you want to see it, here is what the text tells us. This is how God judges sin. In living time, he judges sin by giving people what they want. What we learn in this text is God, when he judges sin, he allows people to reduce themselves from the very purpose and glory and reason he made them to something less He lets them drown in their greed. He lets them gorge on their sexual appetite. He lets them destroy every basic human relationship they have. And he lets them do this believing that they're still the good person in the story. So we see God created us to know him, to love him, and then turn around and know and and to love others. And if we would simply live this way, we we would know happiness and we would live with overflowing joy. But instead... We ignore the evidence. We, we, we turn away from the fingerprint. We rebel against the authority. All of our relationships become self-centered. What can I get out of this? And because our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with the world is broken. And so we watch societies break down. We watch people have mental breakdowns and physical breakdowns. And as we watch this happen in our lives and in other people's lives, we watch as we try to rebuild the center or the core again with careers and family and, and fame and romance and sex and power. And, and then we watch it collapse again and again and again, and we become slaves to this master and this master, always running around thinking that we have to keep this rule and we have to do this work and put up this performance to get that promise, which never develops. And what the text points out, is, it's plainly obvious that we're guilty. We suffer because of sin. We're guilty of bringing suffering of sin. We're guilty because of sin. We're not good people. God plainly speaks and we shut him out. He reveals himself and we shut him out. So the doctrine, what we have here, the key to fruitfulness is understanding prone to, that we are prone to foolishness. In the book of Ezra, I think I may have mentioned it this morning in Sunday school, in the book of Ezra, Ezra finally arrives to Jerusalem with his caravan and he gets there and somebody shows up and says, Ezra, you got to know these people who got here before you, they're already starting to sin against God's law. And the text tells us that Ezra simply sit, he tears his clothes and he pulls out his hair and he pulls out of his beard. And he just sits there in stunned silence. How can these people, after 70 years of captivity, because of their sin, as soon as they got home, went right back to it? We sing a song, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love At no point in our lives, as we talked about last week, at no point in our lives will it ever be true that Jesus' life and blood were not necessary. If we were created to love and serve others, we need to be reminded that that is only possible when our relationship with God is fixed. And so, number one, we exist for holiness and love Number two, humanity's relationship with God is broken. And the number three, essential doctrines to the fruitful life. Only God can put things right. I want you to pay attention here to the closing verses. Verse 28. And you see, one of the, one of the, the, uh, the uh, consequences of a broken relationship with God is that breakdown of basic human relationships. I want you to note the sins here. You might uh, have a different translation, but let me just kind of translate them for you. He lists out committing evil, coveting, being malicious, envious, committing murder, causing strife, being deceitful, gossip, slander, hating, Insolent, arrogant, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Every sin listed here is something we do to another person. And we do it because our, our, our relationship with God is broken. And we watch this for, for generation after generation. We know there's something wrong. But I want you to point, I want you to see this, this last verse here because he says look we know it's wrong to murder for example and we know that murderers deserve to be punished but instead we approve it when it's somebody we hate and we approve it when we do it ourselves and then the, that that idea there then is that we Instead of being repulsed by this, in fact, embrace it. And it means we, we can't fix anything because, because we'll never get out of this cycle. Because not only do we love this sin, we love to drag people into this sin. You can see that, for example, in gossip. Gossip never stops with two people. Gossip always results in other people being dragged into our sin. Over the years, I have spoken to so many Christian camp directors, and they all tell you the same thing. It's almost a joke now. He said, if you get 12 busloads of teenagers, and you get uh, get them all, all 12 of them from somewhere different, so different parts of the country, without fail, within the first couple of hours of camp, he said, the girls who are already having premarital intimacy, they find each other. The boys who hate their parents, they find each other. The cliques and the groups uh, that we all make fun of in high school, all it is is us finding the people that we can or are willing to share in our sins. But does it end in high school? No. We adults, we love to act mature. We love to think we have standards. We love to think we're not like our children, but we are. We just get more skilled at this. And as we get older, we feel this, this weight of being a good person. So, what do we do, we, 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 for example, men, we'll, we'll post pictures on social media and we'll walk into church or other community events as, as a wonderful family man. But at home, he watches pornography. And in the language of scripture, he approves what's happening on the screen. He's participating in it. And then he goes to his wife and he wants to drag her into his sin. And she grows confused and depressed and doesn't know why. And the relationship begins to fall apart. And there are hundreds of examples like this in life. We know what the right thing to do is. And we do everything we can to make people think that we do the right thing. But we have this secret love affair with our sin. And whenever we can, we take the pleasure of dragging people into it. And watch families and friendships and workplaces break down again and again and again. And we are shown again and again and again that we cannot save ourselves. But in response to us not being able to save ourselves, God inserts himself into the situation. We go through the Bible, right, and we learn that, that he, he gives us more information. We get the Bible itself. God speaks, and he preserves what he says, giving more of himself. In just a couple of months, we, we, he shows up in the incarnation. He comes down, walks in our dirt, eats our food. He gives us more of himself. And then we get to the end of the Gospels, and he substitutes himself. He he takes the punishment we deserved, and he brings it down on himself, giving more of himself. And then we look to the end of our Bible, and we see into the future that he returns and he restores all things by giving more of himself. And so what the point of the text here is that there aren't enough rules, there's not enough religions, there's not enough 12-step programs that can do what only God can do, can put right what only God can put right. We do not overstate when we say to people, the key to your broken mar- saving your broken marriage, the key to better parenting, the key to being a light at work is more of God, less of you. You want to save your marriage, you got to break up with your sin, no more love affair. And then you turn around and you love the Lord your God, and then you are equipped to love your wife and your children and your coworker and so on. You think of, a, 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 I don't even want to ask, who watched some of these political debates that have happened lately. In an, in an election season, we see all manner of this foolishness, don't we? Think of an issue, poverty, violence, corruption, and every face and every voice on TV saying, I've got the solution. Let me present it to you in time and time again. For those of you who've lived for a few minutes more than me, have you ever watched a solution apply to a problem that just created more problems? It doesn't bear any fruit, does it? Because we're constantly looking for a solution outside of God. And the unfortunate thing is that we do this in our lives and we do this in our churches. We think of solution after solution to the problem. Thinking our wisdom will finally get it right. And this is the warning of scripture. We will not bear fruit. Because bearing fruit in our lives and in our churches is depending upon us embracing the doctrine that says that only God puts things right. So at the center, or at the, in our soil, there is certainly need for the gospel. It is our place of nutrition, our place of balance. But it's not the only thing we need to make things grow. We need doctrine. What we believe, what we teach, what we share. To be a people who bear fruit... And lives and people who bear fruit in our church, with the love affair with sin and the love affair with our own wisdom we've just got to stop. He must increase, we must decrease. We, we we have to admit we can't save ourselves, and what we really need in all of the issues we face is more of Him. We need more of His Word, we need more of His Son. We need more of all the things that He has given us, like His church and His Kingdom. If we're going to bear fruit, we have to admit we are not good people. That it is our tendency, our, our bent, to shut God out. To hide from the truth, to ignore the truth, to bend the truth. And if we're going to bear fruit as people and as a church, we have to know why God created us. We, he created us so that we would know Him. And all of his love and all of his joy and and know all of who he is. And then from there, it would spill out. And this joy and this love he pours into us would find its way into those around us. Or in other words, we begin to bear fruit. That's why he made us. And that's the only way, as Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear fruit. Let's pray. Father, these teachings, these doctrines, these places and foundations, I pray, Father, they would become essential to us. Lord, let let, let us know that this is not about our kingdom and this is about us knowing you, finding our ultimate pleasure in you, that we would love you so we can love our neighbor. Father, let us understand that the world is not just simply torn. It is not simply just uh, slightly off, but it is broken. And may we be a people who are ready to always admit that only you can fix this. We thank you for these truths, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.